You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. The Upjohn Company was a pharma company founded in 1886 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo is also famous as the hometown of New York Yankee great Derek Jeter. Turning, looking, see ya! Home run, Derek Jeter! And for being referenced by the Black Keys in their song, Gotta Get Away. Upjohn was a pioneer in the development of a diverse array of products, including the steroid prednisone, birth control pills, Rogaine, and Motrin. It was acquired by Pfizer in 1995. But Upjohn's journey to white-collar fame began in 1976, when the company's outside accountants in auditing a foreign subsidiary discovered that the subsidiary had made questionable payments to or for the benefit of foreign government officials. The general counsel was informed, and the company decided to do what we would now call, although the term wasn't invented yet, an internal investigation. The general counsel and outside counsel interviewed all of the foreign managers involved in the payments and other officers and employees. The company ultimately disclosed the questionable payments on its SEC Form 8K. Once the information became public, the IRS immediately commenced a tax investigation. Not wanting to do the investigative work itself, the IRS issued a summons to the company for its interview notes and memos. Upjohn did the unthinkable. It fought back. It objected to the summons based on attorney-client privilege and other grounds. It argued, in short, that the information it had acquired in the course of its investigation was protected by the company's attorney-client privilege. This dispute went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which recognized in Upjohn versus United States a broad scope for the attorney-client privilege for a corporation. Few outside the white-collar defense bar have ever heard of the Upjohn case, and that's okay. But Upjohn has become a term of art in the white-collar defense world. Whenever you read or hear about a company doing an internal investigation, know this, there will be Upjohn warnings. My guest this morning is Michelle Peirce, a partner at Barrett and Single. I bet in a quiet moment where it would never be repeated, you ask the lawyer whether you think the person you just gave the warning to understood the implications. The lawyer would likely agree they didn't. Michelle is the co-chair of the firm's litigation practice and a past president of the Women's Bar Association. Michelle represents companies and individuals in investigations, prosecutions, and trials. She has given up John warnings, and she has represented clients who have received them. Michelle and I spoke about Upjohn warnings. Does anyone really understand them besides lawyers? Can you get into trouble if they are not given? We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon, Michelle. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Jim. So today we're going to talk about Upjohn warnings and how they are important in internal investigations that are done by a company. But first, just set the table by telling us, what is an internal investigation? An internal investigation is kind of a fancy phrase for any time 
a company has to, you know, has a problem come up or a potential problem and they need to do uh, an internal investigation or look to see what, if anything, went wrong. So collecting emails, interviewing uh, people, who, witnesses who might be able to shed light on what happened. What, what's typically done first, the review of the email or the questioning of witnesses? In a perfect world, it would be the review of email, but some issues are so time-sensitive and urgent, they might have to start talking to people uh, first. But I think the preference would always be to try to nail down the document, you know, the documentary record before you interview people. So an employee in one of these interviews could be questioned, perhaps interrogated, by the company's lawyers about something that they wrote or received in an email from two, three, even more years ago. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sometimes you see people trying to, you know, they're being asked about something that happened a decade or more ago. Are these interviews voluntary on the employee's part? Um, Yes and no. They don't have to participate, um, but they do risk, depending on the company's viewpoint on that issue, I mean, they risk losing their job. Is that a is that a legitimate grounds for terminating an employee that they have not participated in a company interview? In most situations, I, I think it is. You know, if they have a different arrangement or handbook or union or, you know, there may be other nuances to it. But for the most part, most employees can be fired for any reason. And that would include not helping their employer get to the bottom of a problem. So the Upjohn warnings are warnings or statements that are administered to the employee by the company's lawyers at the beginning of the interview. And we'll go into more detail on each part of the warning in a second, but the in sum and substance, there are five things that need to be communicated to the employee. Um, that the lawyer represents the company and not the employee that the interview is being done in order to provide legal advice to the company uh, and the conversation is covered by the company's attorney-client privilege. The contents of the interview must be kept confidential. The company has the right to waive the privilege uh, without consulting the employee and the information learned in the investigation may be disclosed to to law enforcement agencies. So. Michelle, if you were making a movie out of Upjohn Warnings, what's the opening frame of the movie? The opening frame is probably my ad that I'm looking for a new job as a director and producer because I don't think this is going to be my big smash. But putting that problem to the (laughs) side, I think the opening is a wide-eyed employee walking into a, a huge conference room of a law firm perhaps they've never been to. They walk in the room and they're a host of people they've never seen before. And there's likely there are likely multiple copies of binders on the table that actually have their name on the spine. So it that's how I would start my movie. And and who's in the room? Who are all the people that are there? Yeah, in an internal investigation, I mean, they can go from, you know, giant to sort of more, you know, an informal. But in a typical one in the situations we're talking about, um, you've got company counsel, lead counsel. You may have one, two, three associates, paralegals or others who are there taking notes, flipping through the binders. Um, you you might have in-house counsel participating. 
you know, in the interview as well. So it can be, you know, it can be a pretty large group of people. The, the binder is a tricky thing. When I've, when I've done this on the company side, uh, I've tried to avoid having like a binder for the employee that says on the spine, the Jimmy Smith binder, because that can really freak somebody out. But then you try the alternatives. You have like the master binder, which is going to be five times the size, but just equally intimidating. And then if you use the smaller employee-specific binder without the name on the spine, you end up sometimes giving the person the wrong binder because you lose track. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dilemma. Yeah, I think the, the name on the binder is just the icing on the cake. The room, the fact that there are binders and people you don't know who have questions for you, you know, about your work, um, I think is fun enough. This investigation is all about me, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's go over each of the components of the Upjohn Morning and uh, discuss the the purpose of each one of the parts and how it might resonate with the employee. You know, first of all, the lawyer would start with some small talk, some pleasantries. Um, I think asking the employee, "How's your day going?" is probably to be avoided. It's not. It's not a good day for the employee. Exactly. Um, first part of the morning, I represent. I represent the company and not you. What's the purpose of that part of the morning? The purpose is to begin to establish that I am not here for you. What you're telling me is not, as you'll get to later in the morning, is not privileged. It, it's, you know, it's not a secret. It's not going to be confidential. Um, and identifying clearly, I'm not your lawyer. I am somebody else's lawyer. Um, but it's a tough way to meet somebody. And, and you've represented a lot of employees, some of whom who've already been interviewed and received up John warnings. Right. How, how do you think the employee feels about this part of the warning? I have to say, I think most employees, it didn't soak in when they heard it. And that's why you find a lot of times they don't remember if they were given an up John warning. Um, they, you know, it's such an overwhelming experience just to be called to HR as an employee is overwhelming enough to be called to a law firm and put in this situation. And you may even know there's a criminal or other overlay, I don't think they take that in at all. I've gotten the question a couple times from employees after they hear this, and if it does sink in, uh, do I need my own lawyer? And yes. Then I, and then, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, then I, I think I'm ethically bound to say something like, well, I can't give you any legal advice because I'm not your lawyer, which, ugh, that's horrible. Sometimes your head can nod up and down while you're saying, no, I'm <laughs> kidding, obviously. But yeah, no, it's it's a tough... Again, a tough way to meet somebody and then ask them difficult questions. Part two, we're interviewing you so we can provide legal advice to the company. The contents of this interview are protected by the company's attorney-client privilege. Why is this part of the warning? What's the purpose of saying that? The point of saying that is you are – the company lawyer is there to give advice to the company and they want this to be protected and privileged and confidential. Um, but you are at the same time trying to let the employee know that um, it is not their privilege. It's not their, you know, thing to waive or not waive, but it belongs to the company. And, and how do you think the employee reacts to that typically? I just don't think that – first of all, I just it, – it is so inherently coercive. Um, and then you add on top of it, this is a complicated issue. Privilege is complicated period, let alone when you begin to separate, it's this privilege, it's it's the company's privilege, not yours. I think, I, I don't, maybe I'm not 
giving people enough credit, but I don't think most people soak that in and certainly don't soak it in and understand what the implications are for them in particular. And certainly if somebody has even a rudimentary understanding of the attorney-client privilege as it would apply to an individual, this concept of a company having an attorney-client privilege would seem several steps removed. I mean, it took a Supreme Court decision to figure out what the attorney-client privilege meant um, after courts had struggled with it for decades. Right. And as someone who has a leaning, I represent companies too, but I do have a leaning toward the individual, the word that jumps out from all of that is confidential. So even if you're telling me you're not my lawyer, you're not here for me, it's the company's privilege, I think it still feels very confidential and that this, you know, the conversation will be kept confidential, which I know later in the warning is undone. But Right. That's, well, that, that, that's, again, part of the warning is, is the company lawyer tells the employee, you must keep the contents mm-hmm. of this communication confidential. Um, that can be sort of confusing for the employee, right? It is. And in your experience, do, do clients and who, who are told to keep things confidential and not talk about them, do they do that ever? My clients always keep it confidential, of course, <laughs> but I have heard that other people that's very difficult to ask somebody to be involved in that stressful a situation uh, and then go back out among them, their coworkers and not say boo about it, I think is, is pretty tough. Part four, the privilege belongs to the company and the company may decide to waive the privilege without getting uh, your input or even telling you. Well, that, that's a handful, right? It is. And what's the purpose of this part of the Upjohn warning? The purpose of that part is to to let the person know, or you're beginning to let them know, and then later in the warning it becomes a little more explicit, that we get to decide, we the company will decide if what you say here is shared or if it is kept confidential going forward. And it is not your decision what happens to this, you know, whatever you say. Part five, um, the coup de grace. Information lived in this interview may be disclosed to law enforcement agencies. Um, and again, all of these parts of the warning will be peppered with, um, do you understand? There'll be nods. Do you have any questions? There won't be any. Uh, but the fifth part here, information learned in this interview may be disclosed to law enforcement agencies. Why is this something that the company's lawyers would say in the context of the warning? I, th- I think to really make it concrete, ideally for that person, that what I mean by wave and share and et cetera is that I, that I the, the person asking the questions, could actually hand this over to a prosecutor, to the SEC, to whomever, um, it, without your permission, knowledge, et cetera. And, and just to put a finer point on it, why would the company's lawyers do that? Why would right, they right. share the results of these interviews with the cops? Yeah, often in in these types of situations, in the white collar situations where you have an internal investigation, the company's best and sometimes only, you know, defense is to cooperate and to cooperate aggressively with law enforcement. And so, you know, some companies uh, are quicker to do that than others. Some kind of put up a big. Uh, defense, but but often the stakes are too high, and the again the company attorneys will be in a position where they're feeding information to the government and trying to help them and get credit for that cooperation. 
And, and even going so far as to waive the company's attorney-client privilege by sharing these results with prosecutors. Exactly. And years ago, um, this has changed a little bit, but it used to be a requirement for getting credit uh, for a time there that the company had to agree to waive the attorney-client privilege. Why don't employees just run at the end of the upjohn warning? I think there are a couple reasons. One is they don't want to lose their job and they've been asked to be there and human beings are inherently sort of, you know, afraid of being unemployed. Um, I, I think the second reason, honestly, is that they I, – I have clients who are under indictment and still don't understand that they committed a crime. So if you back up to three years before an indictment and you bring someone in for an interview on a new issue that's come up um, – even if they're worried and nervous, they don't envision themselves of, as having committed a crime or ever being the person who's going to end up, you know, on the other side of a V in, in the indictment. So I don't think they think that way the way we would were we to accompany someone to that interview. Were we, you know, ever allowed to? Usually, as you said, you hear about it afterwards. And if the, I mean, if the employee, for example, has not seen his name on the spine of the binder, the employee, like all human beings probably think, or at least I think male human beings, females less, probably this is about somebody else, not me. Yeah, I think that's right. And even where they know they did something, they may not think of it as criminal, but they know they did something wrong. They wrongly take great comfort in, well, my boss told me to do that. So yeah, I made that entry on the ledger, but my boss told me to do that. So I'm certainly not in trouble. And that's just not the case. Have you ever been in situations where um, the employee wants to have their own lawyer with them uh, for the company interview, e either as a reaction to the Upjohn warnings or maybe sort of prearranged in advance. Where they want, I, I think. Where the employees are going to be accompanied by a lawyer for the uh, the interviews by the company's lawyers. I have more often than not, though, the company wants to have that interview in before people have their own attorneys because. You know, they then are probably not going to get the information that they wanted or they won't get it as quickly. Um, so, again, more often I haven't. I have participated in those interviews jointly. But I, I think, you know, again, more often they've already happened by the time I'm involved. And, and from the perspective of the company's lawyers, I mean, sometimes there actually is urgency to getting the interviews accomplished. Right. Particularly if there's tremendous pressure from the government to cooperate. The government's going to want things fast. Um, if lawyers get involved, there's going to be schedules to consider. The lawyer probably is going to actually want to represent their client for the, for the interview, get emails in advance and so forth, and it um, it can slow things down for Correct. sure. Now, ba back to your movie. Um, one of the people in the room is the sort of most junior associate on the team of the company's lawyers who is pounding away on a laptop during the interview, right, and memorializing everything that's said. Um, and one of the things, of course, that the junior associate is going to memorialize is the fact that Upjohn warnings were given, um, probably just taking the template paragraph from the previous memo that they had done and banging it right in there. Um, now, some people have argued that that's not enough, that really what should happen is um, the employee should sign a 
sort of an acknowledgement that they have received and understand the Upjohn warnings. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Have you ever run into that? I can't think of a time where I've seen somebody actually sign off on one or be asked to sign off on one. I mean, certainly that would be the best evidence that it had happened, um, but I, I don't think it happens very frequently. Have you ever seen it done? No, and I, I've, I've, I've read about it being done. I've no. heard about it being done. I've always, you know, in the situation where I represent the company, I've always sort of recoiled at the thought. Um, I mean, it's, there's a, I'm not sure the most employees, you know, understand the Upjohn warnings. And then to have to watch them sign their name to a document while everyone in the room is, is looking at them, it just seems... You know, it would, it would be like sort of watching some customer sign a contract of adhesion for buying a stereo for payments that stretch over 50 years. It just seems almost unconscionable. I see what you mean. No, I don't disagree. So the, the purposes of Upjohn warnings are, are I, I guess they're twofold. One is to make sure there's not an attorney-client relationship between the company lawyers and the witness. And the other is to preserve the company's attorney-client privilege. But you mentioned the situation where a company is cooperating with the government or certainly intends to cooperate with the government by sharing the results of interviews. I mean, in, in that context where the company's already made the decision to cooperate and share the contents of the interviews of employees to some extent, I mean, are those interviews privileged anyway? I mean, is there really any confidentiality, which is the hallmark of the privilege? No, I think it's a good question. As a pure matter of privilege, I would say if you went into the interview knowing for certain that you were going to share all of it, I don't think it was ever intended to be confidential and a good argument could be made that, as you said, the privilege didn't attach to begin with. It's not a waiver issue. Are Upjohn warnings even meant to be understood? I mean, is it important that they're understood, or is this just kind of a sort of a, a, a legal fiction? I think it's important that they're given and that they're understood, but I actually agree with you that it becomes kind of a legal fiction. The lawyers go through it and they say everything they're supposed to say, um, but I bet if in a quiet moment where it would never be repeated, you ask the lawyer whether you think the person you just gave the warning to understood it or understood the implications, the lawyer would likely agree they didn't. I mean, do you think it in some ways is analogous to, you know, when you go onto a website or an app and you're asked to like accept the terms and conditions and you just click? I think it was called a clip, click wrap agreement. I mean, are the Upjohn warnings kind of like that where it's not really important that anything's understood, it's just sort of checking a box? Uh I think they become like that, but I don't think they should be like that. I mean, it is it can make or break the people who are being interviewed, and I think they should understand, and the goal should be to make them understand. And if you see their eyes kind of wandering the room and have reason to believe that they don't, I think the right thing to do from a human perspective is to make sure that they did understand it, especially when you know they do have um, a certain amount of exposure, although at that point you may be required to let them know they should have an attorney. Um, so I think it is, I want to say clickbait, but that's not the click wrap. It, it's that webby thing that you said, Jim. Yes. Um, but I don't think it should be. 
So the, the 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 one thing that is clear is that the failure to give up John warnings at all can sometimes cause problems for lawyers. Um, let's talk for a moment about the the Broadcom the Broadcom case sure. and the tragedy of its CFO William Rule. Uh, maybe this falls into the lesson learns category of up John warnings. A little bit of background on Broadcom. Um, in the mid two thousands, there was a stock option backdating scandal. It was triggered by a Wall Street Journal article where some very smart professor from, I think, the University of Iowa had studied um, public corporations' option agreements and the exercise of those option agreements and thought, wow, it's really weird that all of these executives are doing abnormally well in exercising their stock options. And it, it turned out that there was a practice that was prevalent number number of companies across the land where stock option grants would be backdated. In other words, when you get a stock option, the traditional way would be if you come to the company on day one, you would get a stock option that would uh, have a grant date of the day that you started work. And then if the stock option increased over time and as you stayed along with the company enough um, you know, a couple of years or whatever the terms of the grant were, and the stock went up, you would be able to make money. But apparently what a lot of companies in the tech sector were doing to lure people to come would be they would backdate the option. So the grant date of the option wouldn't be the day you started work. They would backdate it to the time when the stock option in the past had been at a really, really low price. So you were actually... You had a your options were in the money from the day you started working there. Now, hundreds of companies get investigated. Uh, people, you know, at the SEC uh, investigates people. Corporations file restatements. Uh, people are sued civilly by the SEC. Some people are even indicted. One of the companies that falls on the radar of law enforcement eventually is Broadcom, and Broadcom. Um, began an internal investigation of its stock option dating practices. Um, and shortly after that, they announced the investigation. Civil lawsuits are filed. And in the civil lawsuits, their CFO, Mr. Rule, is named as an individual defendant. And he's also one of the people that's involved in scoping out the investigation with outside counsel. Uh, in connection with these civil lawsuits, outside counsel that is doing the internal investigation also agrees to represent Mr. Rule. So as all this is happening within a matter of weeks, uh, Mr. Rule is interviewed by two lawyers, two partners from the outside law firm. And this interview becomes the subject of litigation down the road particularly around there's a dispute as to whether Mr. Rule was given Upjohn warnings in connection with this interview. Oddly, there's no memorandum of the interview. So can you, as you think about this scenario, can you see any reason why these two partners from the Broadcom's outside law, law firm would not have Upjohn Mr. Rule? Yeah, I think there are a few. I mean, one, they might, I, I don't know who they are, but they might not know better. 
you know, they may not be familiar with internal investigations. I doubt that's what it was in this instance, given it's Broadcom and given the issues. I think another is that they did have a relationship with the CFO. He had been a contact person. He was an individual client in at least the one matter that was arising out of the stock options. And so they may have had that level of familiarity with him where they kind of skipped over something they wouldn't have skipped with someone they didn't know. And then let's face it, he's their main contact. And so there is a business development um, element to it where it can be a little awkward to say to the person who is giving you business and and that you're typically, you know, trying to keep on a good relationship with to say, I'm not your lawyer. I'm not here for you. You know, I might turn over your words to um, law enforcement. That's not a great biz dev plan, is it? No, I've tried it. It's not successful. Yeah. What What do you make of the fact that there was no memorandum made of this interview and only two partners of the outside law firm conducted the interview? It was that there was no interview. There was no. There was no. No memo. Excuse there, me. There was no, no memorandum prepared. Not of the just interview. that they didn't have the. I I think it. <laughs> I think it signals that it was done quickly and not with the normal resources. Normally, in you know, often in a case like that, it would be a large firm. There would be at least one associate doing the memo. So to me, it signifies that it was perhaps not following the normal steps, which is kind of a recipe for disaster and perhaps why, um, if it really hadn't been given, the upjohn wasn't given, which I know there was a dispute about here. I mean, it sounds a little casual, doesn't it? It does. And perhaps if you're interviewing this person who, who you've represented before, you're representing currently, you might not want to bring an associate that's going to be pounding on the laptop, writing down every word this person is saying. It could be. So flash forward to a year later. Um, now the SEC and DOJ are vigorously and aggressively investigating Broadcom um, and dozens of other companies. The law firm makes the decision, presumably in an attempt to get cooperation credit, to turn over the results of their internal investigation. And one thing they do is they turn over the results of the rule interview. They don't tell rule. They just turn the results over. Um, there are, and, and shortly thereafter, uh, Rule gets indicted in 2008. And what happens when you get indicted and you're going to go to trial, the government has to give you discovery, right? And they see in the discovery FBI reports of the interviews of the Broadcom outside counsel's partners describing what Rule said in his interview. Well, Mr. Rule is not happy. What does he do? In that case, uh, his attorneys, I, I believe, moved to suppress his uh, interview memo saying that he believed he was individually represented by outside counsel um, and therefore, you know, he hadn't consented to having his confidential communication shared. So he moved to suppress initially successfully, if I'm not ruining your story by saying that. No, initially he's successful in the district court. Uh, the government appeals this on an interlocutory basis before trial, and the Ninth Circuit reverses. And the Ninth Cir Circuit reverses based on the conclusion that because Mr. Rule knew the results of this interview would be disclosed to the outside auditors, the interview was not privileged. Does that seem like a correct result? 
I think as a strict legal matter, if you were doing the research, it might. But as a as a practical matter, I think it it overlooks how people really operate and how they think. So as a strict legal matter, yes, perhaps because he was told it could be shared with third parties, meaning the auditor, and I think that's the only party he was told it could be shared with as a technical matter. And as the court found, it wasn't going to be confidential, and they held he should have known that. I don't think it's very fair, however, because it assumes that the individual who isn't a lawyer knows the nuances of privilege. And so put another way, I think this, I think Rule could very easily have believed this is still confidential, my communication with my attorney, even though it's being shared with outside auditors. Companies have a very close relationship with the auditors. Um, and I don't know that he would understand that took away what he believed was a privileged communication. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, I think at best it's a very technical reading of the attorney-client privilege. Um, so Mr. Rule goes, he, the, judge, the, the district court's decision is reversed. The statements he made to the, his, what he thought were his lawyers are admissible as evidence. Uh, presumably, they are statements in which he makes admissions or the government wouldn't have worked so hard to want to use them. And he goes to trial as a footnote. He actually goes to trial. The government puts on a case for eight weeks. At the end of the eight weeks, the judge throws out the case for prosecutorial misconduct uh, based on the government's uh, intimidation of witnesses. Not not necessarily a happy ending for Mr. Rule, but but could have been worse. But yeah. certainly better than going to going to jail. Um, Michelle, I just want to um, let, let's reflect for a moment on the the sort of resiliency of this term of John Warning. Um, I mean, it's it's ironic, isn't it? Because the Upjohn case itself wasn't even about warnings. It simply was a kind of a sterile discussion of the scope of the attorney-client privilege, right? Right. Now the words become a verb. You know, it's uh, a verb. It's a noun. You can just hear the Broadcom pro prosecutors talking to each other. I'm pretty sure we upjohned Mr. Rule, didn't we? Or do we need to upjohn Mr. Rule? Is, is the upjohn warning, is, do you think it's really a warning? I mean, is it really a warning like Miranda where the, the uh, witness or suspect is advised you know, if you speak to us, these things can and will be used against you. Is the upjohn a warning in that sense? I think it should be if done correctly, because at the end, the person should be told explicitly this can be given to third parties. And by third parties, that can include SEC, law enforcement, you know, use the word prosecutor. So if it's done to the individual's benefit, I think it is a true warning. In practice, I don't think it is as explicit and, and perhaps not made scary enough um, such that people are sufficiently warned what they're about to do. I mean, it's not made scary enough. And also, there is there is such a inherently coercive part of the setting and the employee's status that it, it may not be a truly voluntary decision whether to walk out of the conference room or not. Right. No, I think that's right. Michelle, thank you so much for your time. I can't let you leave without asking you the mandatory guest question. What was your first concert? Who'd you see? What venue? Who'd you go with? All right. My first concert was a Grateful Dead concert. Fire.
with Robbie Brown somewhere in Florida, maybe Hollywood, Florida. I don't remember the place. I'll go back to the part where it was a Grateful Dead concert. Great. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle. Let's continue the conversation. You can find me, Jim Rehnquist, on goodwinlaw.com or on LinkedIn. Talk to you later.